So hello, welcome. Here we are for our introductory podcast. We're going to be hearing from four fantastic colleagues today, all based at Leeds Law School and all women. So we're celebrating uh, women in legal research. We're going to be having a little chat with each of the four individually, but just so you know who I've got sat with me today, I have Dr. Jill Dickinson, who is a reader within the law school. I have Dr. Agata Fiakowski, who is also a reader in the law school. I'm also pleased to have Dr. Susie Oyak-Hiri, who is a senior lecturer and joined the law school in April 2023. And then last but not least, I have Dr. Anne-Marie Greenslade, who is a senior lecturer here in the law school and completed her PhD with us and graduated from that in, oh, Anne-Marie, when was it now? Two years ago, two years ago. Okay, fantastic. Um, so, Jill, let's, let's start with you. So, you're a former solicitor. You worked supervising trainee solicitors and, and workplace students, and part of that work inspired you to move into academia, where you, I believe, have principally focused on the areas of placemaking and professional development. So I'm hoping you'll tell us more, a little bit more about placemaking, because that's a, a fascinating area. You've been shortlisted for National Teaching Fellowship and you were selected as a reviewer for the Advanced Global Teaching Excellence Awards. And your approach has also been recognised in the Emerald Literati Awards for Excellence and through your roles on a number of editorial boards and committees and I don't know how you manage it but then in your spare time um, you also like the outdoors so cycling skiing walking and you've recently taken up paddle boarding so if you manage to stay upright on a paddle board then obviously you can achieve anything you put your mind to so welcome Jill thank you Louisa so Jill, I wondered if you could just ever so briefly provide an overview of your your book, which has already been published, I believe. Yes. So if you could give us its title, just say a, a, li a little bit about the, the book and just expand a bit on your motivation and inspiration, if that's OK. Thank you, Louisa. Um, yeah, that's great. So, so the book's entitled Professional Development for Practitioners in Academia, Pracademia. Um, it was published by Springer um, earlier this year. Um, it's a multidisciplinary collection and I co-edited it with a former colleague of mine, uh, Terry Lisa Griffiths from Sheffield Hallam University. And the book draws together perspectives from around 29 contributors from across the UK and internationally. And it critically examines the concept of pracademia and it aims to further develop understandings of the contributions that pracademics can make and really champion the benefits of building a diverse faculty for everybody involved. So the intended audience is really broad, um, so it includes leaders, policymakers, professional bodies, 
um, those who, like me, have already moved from practice into academia, and then people who are maybe contemplating such a move as well. Um, it's structured around three core themes of academic identities, professional development and teaching practice, and includes a mix of empirical, theoretical and reflective approaches. Um, and topics, um, in case that's of interest, include things like um, building networks, practice-informed teaching, doctoral studies, imposter syndrome, cultural adjustment and managing dual professional identities. Um, and then, yeah, finally, in terms of motivation and inspiration for the book. So in terms of career background, um, I'm a former solicitor. Uh, when I moved from practice into academia, I really quickly found that there was a lot involved in making that career transition. So working towards a doctorate, uh, publishing research, being returned in the Research Excellence Framework, or REF, um, as it's known. And then that was all alongside studying for a teaching qualification, teaching, uh, sorry, taking on module and course leadership and becoming an academic personal tutor. So I really, you know, wish I'd have had something like this when I was making um, that career move. And I'm really hopeful that it might help others too. Thanks, Jill. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic resource, isn't it? I think trying to to sort of bridge the gap between the very practical uh, provision of legal services and then providing the student experience in the study of law. And as you say, that the, the different cultures within those two different entities and institutions but the the cross-fertilization as well is so rich and I think it's fantastic that we've got this contribution that's really celebrating that but is also providing some guiding principles and I just wanted to ask you Jill because obviously you were undertaking interviews as part of the the research for the book and I wondered what was one of the most or, or what might have been surprising elements that you discovered during that process while speaking to people? Yes, yeah, so, um, so where the research started was with some focus group um, interviews, um, and then we moved from there to produce this multidisciplinary collection. Um, but yeah, when we were doing the initial research interviews, it was it was fascinating. So we did some focus groups with pracademics and some of them were telling us how they felt like when they moved from uh, practice into academia, it was like falling off a cliff. Um, they felt like they were starting from scratch. And some of these were quite, you know, they'd had quite senior roles in practice. Um, so it was really interesting uh, to hear firsthand about their experiences and that really helped drive forward um, the idea for for this book. Mm, yeah really fascinating thank you so if you had one piece of advice if someone else was going to embark upon a similar project what what advice would that be? Thank you. Yes. So um, definitely speak to others who have published to find out about what they felt worked or not about their approach, you know, what they do differently or the same next time. 
um, have an action plan. I love an action plan, but be prepared to build in flexibility. You know, these kinds of projects can take a couple of years from start to finish. However much you plan, there'll always be unanticipated issues um, that you just couldn't have foreseen. Um, and I think the main thing for me is very much consider working with others. It can really help to make the process more enjoyable and doable. And I think it's always interesting and helpful to have different perspectives to draw on, particularly when it comes to making key decisions about the book's potential direction. Lovely. And I know you've been very active, Jill, haven't you? There's been lots of follow-up presentations. You've been invited. I know you're speaking to the Committee of Heads of Law Schools soon. So I, I sounds like you've got a really great sort of future steps in terms of the dissemination of this research and taking it further. Yeah, hopefully, Louise. Yeah, I'm excited to see where we go next. So, yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks, Jill. So, Agatha, let me just introduce Agatha to everybody. So, as I said earlier, Dr. Agatha Fielkowski joined Leeds Law School as a reader in July 2019. She completed her PhD in law at the University of London and has published extensively in the field of transitional justice, as well as holding numerous prestigious fellowships. Agatha's ongoing research interest is in the dispensation of justice after the aftermath of World War II in Central, East and South East Europe. And she's received funding from the Socio-Legal Studies Association to carry out research about Polish lawyers from this period who shaped key legal principles in international criminal law. And Agatha has got this wonderfully interdisciplinary approach um, having a home both in law and in the humanities and fantastically and congratulations Agatha recently completed a master's in screenwriting here at Leeds Beckett University and her screenplay draws upon her legal research to tell the stories of protagonists whose confrontation with the law gives the viewer pause to think I don't think we've got that screenplay in production yet, but if anyone is listening and they're interested in, you know, coming coming forward with a pitch, then we'd we'd love to hear from you. So, Agatha, could you just you, you you've you've recently had your your book published and you had a, a very very successful book launch uh, in London, hosted by the Institute for Advanced Legal Studies. Can you just tell us the, the title and just a little bit of an overview about what you're looking to achieve within that, that publication? Thank you um, very much, Louisa, for that um, introduction. Um, very, very much, actually. Um, so the title of my book um, is Law, Visual Culture and the Show Trial. It's published by Routledge, and it's published within the Discourses of Law series. And the book, um, if I would refer to something that's um, special about it, and I'm trying to showcase what's unique about it, is that it addresses and it unravels cultural, historical, and political implications of visualizing law. And it is the first full-blown full 
if you like, exploration of law and visual culture that is set within this context of Central, Eastern, and Southeastern Europe. These are show trials, show trials broadly understood. And I argue that images are an ideal starting point for appreciating how a slight shift in our engagement with an image has the potential to unlock very important and significant um, narratives about justice. And my discussion looks at three unconventional figures. The protagonists lived in Stalinist Albania, East Germany, and Poland. So the time period is 1944 to 1957, roughly thereabouts, if we're taking dating the images that I look at. And um, I argue that the visual depictions of the show trials within the photograph have an affective power and influence and they also possess a sort of transformative, if you like, authority because of the affectivity of the law. Um, law and performance are intertwined and performativity is an attribute of the law. Um, within my book, I'm not so much interested in getting into the um, semantics of what a show trial is, but for the purposes of the discussion, it has to do with the maladministration of justice in relation to um, these three different case studies. And what I would like to do is argue that um, uh, not only showcasing the fact that the relationship between law and visual culture is one that goes back in time, but also the fact that we can uh, engage with the image is an important data set that works very well along other sources of law. Fantastic. I was just thinking then that, you know, we, it's such a fascinating area, isn't it? Because we don't necessarily think of law in visual terms outside of the standard symbols of the law you know, the, the, the sort of the dress of the judiciary and the building of the court and the internal furniture of a courtroom and that kind of thing. But it, I think, and because we've spoken before and, I, and I, I've, I've had the, the pleasure of looking at the images that you are referring to and how much they speak to us about that that moment and the, the political context, the social context as well. And it just got me thinking then about how persuasive images are, but also how um, they are part of the, the rhetoric and the propaganda and, and the media use as well, if we sort of think about some more, more recent cases as well. So um, it's, it's really interesting. And the, in terms of the motivation and inspiration for the book, I'm thinking back to a conversation we had some time ago now, and am I right in thinking that it was a particular image that then prompted and, and opened up this avenue of exploration for you? Yeah, I mean, I am... Um... So I, I engage with a lot of archival research, and I feel lucky in that sense. I, I think it's a very um, unexplored discussion, if you like, within law and humanities itself. And I just, when I was in actually in Albania, um, trying to 
find trial transcripts, I came across uh, an image of, um, of a woman in a black veil dressed in black. So it's a black and white image, but you can see that what she's wearing is, is, is black before a microphone. And this microphone is one of those silvery Hollywood-like microphones. And you could see people and audience behind her. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on there, but the stance of the um, this, this woman before this microphone, uh, I mean, to this day, it is something that um, captivates, and I think I can attest to the fact that it captivates a, a variety of different people um, uh, who've seen this image. And it was of um, the political dissident Musina Kokolari, and then later, just by accident, again, coincidence, I came across her trial transcript, and that um, I found it was uh, her at her, show, her own show trial. And the reason she was dressed in black was a movement of protest because her brothers had been executed by the authorities. So she was sort of uh, sending this unspoken message to the court that was trying her. And yeah, so that, that, was, a, that was something that provoked this particular project actually. And it made me think about the um, emotion that is part of the image. So very much in Susan Zontag, it lingers with you. We are always going back and wondering, and that's why these narratives are so important to visit and discuss, um, because it's an, still an incomplete history, if you like, of this particular period in time in these particular case studies. Yeah, yeah thanks. Thanks, Agata. So just, just one final question mm -hmm. for you was, um, if, what was the most challenging aspect about this particular project? And I suppose this links to, and how would you advise someone who might find themselves in, in a similar situation? So I think that if one wants to undertake archival work, which I would encourage anyone who's interested in looking at something like that, um, uh, to do, but the challenge is you're never quite sure what you find in the archive. So it's not only a question of like sometimes the administration that's involved in relation to accessing particular materials, you don't know what you find when actually you are there, but also to always bear in mind uh, critically what sorts of information is made available by the archive itself, because archives are very much in control of the kind of official narrative that it seeks to set out as part of a wider state narrative um, that has to do with the historical memory. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Aita. It's fascinating. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, available for purchase online along with Jill's Pracademia book. So, you know, please, please feel free people to, to go out there and uh, grab a copy. Okay, so next we have Dr. Susie Oyakhiri, who joined the Leeds Law School in, as a senior lecturer just recently in April 2023. Susie, you hold a Bachelor of Law degree from the University of Benin, a, a Master's of Law, which you specialise in international law, and then your PhD is from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, Susie has published in areas of criminal law and justice and 
international economic law, in particular international trade law, and is developing and continuing to develop research in issues focusing on victim and witness protection concerns, taking a comparative approach to this. And again, in spare time, how anyone manages to have any spare time when you're coming out of just having prepared a book for publication is beyond me. But you enjoy watching movies and dancing. Before we get on to the book, Susie, I just want to know what kind of dancing in particular. Nothing. I just love to dance to music. So um, hip hop, um, hip hop music, any form of dancing, moving my body will do. Yeah, I just and imagine that I'm dancing to an audience and go with it. Any kind of movement, definitely. Well, it raises the spirits, that's for sure. I love dancing. I used to like dancing in the kitchen with my children. Um, OK, so. I'd be really interested to know a little bit more about your your recent book, Susie, and the the motivations for you publishing in that particular field, the title of the book, just your your experiences. Because am I right in thinking that your book built upon your PhD thesis? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So thank you, Louisa. For the introduction. So the book is titled Witness Protection and Criminal Justice in Africa, Nigerian in International Perspectives, and it was just published in June of this year by Routledge, and it was part of the Contemporary Issues in Criminal Justice and Procedure series. So like you rightly said, it's actually a modified version of my doctoral thesis, okay? Um, and it explored the concept of witness protection, which is still at an early development developmental stage in several jurisdictions, including Nigeria. But more importantly, um, the concept is one that lacks clarification. And so recent developments in the Nigerian criminal justice space prompted the need to clarify um, the conceptual and legal issues within the concept of witness protection. So um, using the Nigerian case study, the book illuminates some of these obscurities inherent to the concept of witness protection, but those were highlighted around five critical areas. For example, who are the, def the definition of witnesses who will require protection, the scope of um, crimes that will require um, protection, the nature of the protective measures that should be available, the administrative control of witness protection, but more significantly, even the definition of witness protection itself, okay? So um, the, the clarifications made in the book are utilized in making normative proposals for develop, developing a legal framework for witness protection in Nigeria and for many African countries that may be interested in developing their own practice. Um, in terms of my intended audience, it will serve as a reference point for legal scholars, researchers, academics, especially postgraduate students and policymakers, um, criminal justice experts interested in the concept of witness protection. Um, the book fills an important gap as there's currently no book that focuses on the Nigerian practice and how it shapes the understanding of witness protection. So um, by discussing witness protection using the Nigerian perspective, my book actually contributes to that African conversations on the topic. In terms of motivation, um, my 
any knowledge of witness protection actually, or the idea itself was actually limited to scenes from blockbuster movies from Hollywood. There was really nothing. In fact, my earliest influence on criminal law and justice were from movies or um, John Grisham novels that I read in my teenage years. However, um, a personal experience with uh, um, police officers from a particular um, police station somewhere in Lagos, Nigeria, raised concerns about my safety as I had to move out of my accommodation and um, because I had made some formal complaints against them. Now, this singular encounter got me curious about mechanisms, if any, what mechanisms were in place to protect witnesses or anyone who had reported civil wrongs or criminal justice, you know, criminal activities. Now, this coincided, my curiosity actually coincided with my desire to begin my doctoral studies. And so that formed the basis of my dissertation or my research, okay? At the time, my curiosity was just limited to knowing the practicalities of witness protection. But with time, I realized that the concept was more complex than I imagined. And in fact, depending on which criminal justice practitioner or actor I spoke with, the concept had a different meaning. And so for four years as a doctoral student, I tried to deconstruct the concept of witness protection while ensuring to take into consideration practical limits in which witness protection can be proposed for developing countries like Nigeria. Thank you. Absolutely fascinating, Susie. Thank you. Yeah, I've got all sorts of things spinning around my head having listening to you to you speak there. You know, I'm thinking about the the nature of dangers to to witnesses, um, not only in the Nigerian context and the African context, but, but worldwide as well. Um, the similarities, the differences, and also thinking about particularly in um those sort of high profile cases, but but also not in the high profile cases, you know, th those instances where we've got members of a, a local community that are being encouraged to come forward as witnesses and some of the difficulties that they may have and that the experiences in that respect. And I just wondered if as, as part of your research, what was the most sort of revealing aspect for you you know sort of was, was there a particular light bulb moment or a, a particular challenge or problem that that really sort of stuck with you yeah so most of the conversations or literature on witness protection are from you know developed country perspectives and so most of the proposals from there usually would give um suggestions that might that would work in a system that actually functioning. So one of the challenges that I encountered was trying to adapt it within the social cultural context. Okay. Um, for example, it, it, of course, we know that it deals with high profile um, cases, usually limited to um, terrorism, organized crime. But in terms of the, the, the mechanisms available, one is to change the name, but we found that within the local Nigerian context, Names are so important, they have both a spiritual and a cultural origin to it. So it's not easy to tell a witness whose only motivation is to come and give evidence to change the name. So those are the kind of um, challenges trying to develop something that is workable within Nigeria and you know, not taking away from its social cultural and social political 
settings. So yeah. Lovely. And in terms of some some advice, uh, because you you developed this book project from your thesis, how how straightforward was that process? Oh, so that, that that was a challenge because, you know, while I wrote the thesis, I was a student in um, UCT, University of Cape Town, and I had access to materials. And now at the time I was modifying my book, I was back home in Nigeria, and one of the major challenges was access. Okay, I needed to modify and update, and I didn't have access to the materials that I was seeing. So I'll rely on my friends in institutions who had this access, and that actually affected my flow, okay, because there are times I'll be seated, ready to work, but I wouldn't have the materials, and those are people who are busy, so I had the challenge of access, okay, but more importantly, because it was a PhD, I had taken it for granted that since most of the research had been done during my doctoral studies, it would be easy to modify, but this turned out to be false because I constantly battled with the imposter syndrome. I had a question of how, how to, can you imagine you would be an author, you know, like who told you you'd be an author? I knew that there was a gap. So the imposter syndrome was something that also kind of prevented me or limited me in writing. And this, but I had signed a proposal. And so this cost, uh, I'd signed a contract and I had a timeline and this cost additional stress. Um, but um, I was able to overcome this by going back to the feedback of the comments by the reviewers of my doctoral thesis, their, their, their reports were very excellent. And also the feedback from the reviewers, okay? And I told myself, if those people, this expert believed that my research was worth something, then it meant something. And so that became a source of inspiration. So in terms of advice to people who, young people writing their book like me, I would say be kind to yourself, celebrate any task completed, no matter how little it is, and when you think you need time, then you need a break. When you need a break, you need a break. But have a workable schedule and push on to the end. It is worth it. That's what I would say. Thank you. I think that is there's some fantastic advice there, Susie. And I think what you're sharing in terms of that essentially negative inner voice with regards to the imposter syndrome can sometimes be um so debilitating can't it you know it can stop people pushing forward and pushing through and I think reaching out to other people having mentors having role models like yourself will really assist people with that so thank you um and so now going on to Anne-Marie so we have Dr Anne-Marie Greenslade who as I say is a senior lecturer it, the, in the uh, Leeds Law School here at Leeds Beckett University. And Anne-Marie has got a background as a frontline practitioner, both in the voluntary and the public sectors. And Anne-Marie came to us having had experience supporting refugee communities in Kosovo, and this fueled her interest in international human rights practice and research and then later Anne-Marie you worked alongside the police and the Crown Prosecution Service I understand as an independent advocate for survivors of rape and sexual abuse. 
So you were awarded your PhD, which was focusing on frontline services for modern slavery survivors in 2022. And you've won awards for your three minute thesis um, and the Partnership for Conflict, Crime and Security Research Snapshots. You've had one previous publication, which was a co-authored chapter in an edited volume focusing on modern slavery and human trafficking, looking in particular at the victim's journey. And in your spare time, you also enjoy dancing as well as sewing. So I'm just going to ask Anne-Marie, is there a particular form of dancing which is the thing that really gets, gets you going, keeps you happy? Um, I also do not have a particular style of dancing other than chaotic freestyle. I just hear music I like and I just go for it. My friends call me Tigger. So I just bounce <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Excellent. I went to a French dancing festival a few weekends ago and did a dance class. And that was possibly one of the most hilarious things I've done in a long time. Anyway, that's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about today, which is finding out a little bit more about your book, which I understand you are working on at the moment. Similar to Susie, your book has come out of your PhD thesis. Am I correct? Yes, you are. Yeah. So it's actually been really interesting listening to Susie's experiences and the advice that she's just given. Um, because, yeah, I'm still in the process of turning that PhD into this this published thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the title of it is Modern Slavery Survivor Pathways, Policy, Legislation and Practice in the UK. Um, that's with Routledge and hopefully it will get published next year, 2024. Brilliant. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what the key objectives of, of your book are and some of your motivations around your research in this particular field. So, as you said before, my background was really at the front line, supporting survivors, um, and you're working alongside the criminal justice system. So this was in the UK, and you start to see where the flaws are in the system. You see how victims and survivors are treated as witnesses for this bigger behemoth that is the criminal justice system, uh, the interactions that they have with all the legal professionals, with law enforcement professionals, and you're just trying to manage their expectations and, you know, obviously support them emotionally. But this for them is, you know, the most serious thing that's ever happened in their lives. It's, it's a really big deal. Um, but of course, as part of that broader system, unfortunately, there's just another statistic. And having, as, a, as you said before, having also worked abroad, working with refugees, it kind of morphed into this feeling of I'd like to actually go back and study the law and see how I could perhaps try to improve the system in some way, even if in a tiny, small way. Um, and it, it did sort of morph into doing a master's in international human rights law, which then started making me look a little bit more at other types of victim survivors. So that's how I really got involved in looking at modern slavery and human trafficking. And at the time, it was 
a very new area of law in the UK. So the Modern Slavery Act only came out in 2015. So a lot of people weren't really even aware of it at all. Um, and I just really wanted to look at how that law and how you know broader government policy was being fed at the front line, how this was actually working. Um, there was, you know, a few small charities building up around the UK, but it was in its nascent stages. And I just really wanted to see what was working well, uh, what areas of good practice there were, and what we really still needed to work on. Um, so I just went around and started interviewing uh, people that were actually working at those front lines, finding out what was going on, and started putting that research together as part of my PhD. And really at the Viva, um, one of the pieces of advice that I asked for from my Viva examiners was, well, you know, what can I do next with this research? And a few people had already said it's probably worth looking at turning it into a full book rather than chopping it up into small pieces and turning it into a number of articles. And so that's what I did. And um, really what I'm hoping will happen, because as I say at the beginning, the reason for studying law in the first place was I wanted to improve things. So I'm really hoping that as well as other academics, that this book gets picked up by people that are working on the front line. So organisations that would hopefully see those areas of good practice and where things can be improved and ideally picked up by people that actually run the country as well. So, you know, they get some nice advice from it. Um, but yeah, it's it's really about trying to improve the system overall for the people at the heart of it, who, the victim survivors, the ones that have actually been through all this in the first place and whose voices are really crying out to be heard. Thanks, Anne-Marie. So for any policymakers that are listening right now, please do get in touch for some guidance and advice there. One thing that I did want to ask you, Anne-Marie, because obviously researching in this particular field, you're dealing with very sensitive subject matter and the people that the law is designed to protect and assist are often very traumatised and in need of access to other services and, and support networks and I just wondered what your overall sense was in that respect and the the nature of the support for people working in this field given the people that they are supporting themselves. So are you thinking about things like vicarious trauma and how mm. those practitioners actually support themselves and look after yeah. themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's something that one organisation in particular was really hot with because they, they did recognise that. Um, so with the nature of any sort of work where things like counselling and therapy or frontline support work, you've usually got something called clinical supervision. Um, and that is where you speak to somebody. Um, it's, it's not quite counselling, but it is a form of being able to offload and address any issues that you have with particular clients or anything that you may feel that actually, yeah, this is really getting to me. And so this is something that one organisation has already got the ball rolling with they've already put in place clinical supervision it's not something that's necessarily mandatory but it is an area of good practice that I've mentioned in that book lovely thank you well what what a wonderful time I've had listening to all of you speaking today for very very different areas of 
focus and all really vital and important individually but I think also collectively they speak to some really crucial matters of the time you know and, it, and I know Agatha you're looking at archival stuff but it's it's fascinating isn't it to see how the the narratives and the stories of the past continue to be played out today in, in the present day um, so thank you everyone and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it and there will be an opportunity in subsequent podcasts to do a bit more of a deep dive into each of these areas and to hear more from our authors and how their projects and their future research are progressing so that's it thank you all of you and we'll be together again very soon Thank you. Thank you, Louisa. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.